Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit and they shall be created and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who did instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant us in the same spirit to be truly wise and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. The Lord is loving and merciful, slow to anger and full of love. The Lord is kind to all and compassionate to all his creatures. We recite in the Mass. In the Gospel, St. Luke narrates how one day, when a number of tax collectors and sinners came to Jesus, the Pharisees began to gossip because he had welcomed all of them. It is then that our Lord offers them this parable. A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Father, let me have the share of the estate that would come to me. We are all children of God, and being children, then heirs. The inheritance is the sum of the incalculable good things God has prepared and of the limitless happiness he has willed for us. It reaches its plentitude in heaven, and only there will we secure it forever. Until then, we are liable to do what the younger son did with his inheritance. A few days later, the younger son got together everything he had and left for a distant country, where he squandered his money on a life of debauchery. How many men over the centuries, how many in our own times, could find in this parable the basic characteristics of their own personal history? We are able to leave the family home and squander the goods we have been given in a way that is unworthy of our position as children of God. When man sins gravely, he is lost to God and also in himself, for sin makes him lose his way to heaven. It is the greatest tragedy that can happen to a Christian. His honorable life, the hopes God had placed in him, his vocation to holiness, his past and his future have gone under. They are sunk. By loss of sanctifying grace, he has moved away from the principle of life, which is God himself. The sinner whose offense is grave loses the merits he had acquired over the whole course of his previous life and is now incapable of any further merit, being subject in some way to the slavery of the devil. As regards venial sin, John Paul II reminds us that although it does not cause the death of the soul, the person who commits it can cease to go forward or can stray from the way that leads to the knowledge and love of God. Thus, it ought never to be considered as something trivial or regarded as a sin of little importance. The estrangement from the Father causes havoc within the one who brings it about, whose will is weakened and who fritters away his inheritance, which is none other than the dignity of the human being, the inheritance of grace. He who, on leaving the house one day, enjoyed the prospect of worldly happiness out with the boundaries of his father's farm, began to feel the pinch. The world's delights are fleeting and soon came to an end. Sin does not produce true happiness, for the devil does not possess it. Then comes loneliness and the tragedy of lost dignity, the awareness of the divine sonship which has been squandered. The prodigal now had to tend the pigs, an unseemingly and degrading occupation for any Jew. Be appalled, O heaven, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can no longer hold water. Without God, happiness is impossible, although for a time it may appear otherwise. The son, far from his father's home, felt the pangs of hunger. Then he came to his senses. Thinking things over, he decided to set out on his return journey. Thus begins every conversion, every repentance. It is man coming to his senses, calling to a halt his plunge to destruction, reflecting and considering where his ill-fated venture has led him, making, in fact, an examination of conscience, 
which looks at everything he has done from the time he left his father's house right up to the lamentable predicament in which he now finds himself. Sociological analysis are not enough to bring about justice and peace. The root of evil is within man's own interior. The remedy, therefore, has also to come from the heart. When one justifies sin or ignores it, repentance and conversion are made impossible, for they have their root in the very depths of the person. To be able to examine one's life, one has to face one's actions courageously and sincerely, without casting around for false justifications. Learn to call what is white, white, and what is black, black. Call evil what it is, evil, and good what is good. Learn to call a sin, sin, Pope John Paul II advises us. In the examination of conscience, our life is compared with what we know was expected and what God expects of us. Many spiritual authors have compared the soul to a shuttered and closed room. As the window is opened and light comes flooding in, its imperfections, its disorder and dirt, everything shabby and broken becomes visible. In the examination, with the help of grace, we get to know the state we are in, that is to say, how we are in God's eyes. The saints have always recognized themselves as sinners. By their correspondence with grace, they have opened wide the windows of their soul to the light of God. They have known how beneficial and necessary it is to examine well the whole room. In the examination, we will discover also our missions and the fulfillment of our promise of love for God and for men. And we will ask ourselves, to what can I attribute all this neglect and carelessness? When we do not find something to repent of, it will not be because of any lack of faults or sins, but because we have shut ourselves off from this light from God, which shows us at every instant the true condition of our soul. If the window is closed, the room remains in darkness, and one cannot then see the grime, the dust, the chair upset and out of place, the lopsided and cobwebbed pictures on the wall, and all that is not right, and even what is perhaps seriously wrong. Pride also tries to prevent us from seeing ourselves as we are. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes are tight shut, lest they should perceive with their eyes and hear with their ears. The Pharisees, to whom our Lord applies these words, choose to be deaf and blind, because in the end they are unwilling to change. So he left that and went back to his father. He retraces his steps. In the plight he finds himself in, he feels homesick, and little by little his other senses begin to reassert themselves. The warmth of his home, the constant memory of his father's face, the old stirrings of filial affection begin to move him. Sorrow has been somehow ennobling, and the rehearsed phrases are very sincere. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Treat me as one of your paid servants. Each of us too, called as we are to sanctity, is the prodigal son. Human life is in some way a constant returning to our father's house. We return through contrition, through that conversion of heart, which means a desire to change. It means a firm decision to improve our lives a decision which is to be expressed in sacrifice and self-giving. We return to our Father's house by means of that sacrament of pardon in which, by confessing our sins, we put on Jesus Christ again and become his brothers, members once more of God's family. We have to come close to the sacrament desirous of confessing this or that fault without misrepresenting it, without justifying it. I have sinned against heaven and against you. We accuse ourselves humbly and simply without beating around the bush. Repentance for mistakes made is shown in sincerity. The son arrives back, hungry, dirty, and in rags. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with pity. 
He ran to the boy, clasped him in his arms, and kissed him tenderly. He ran to the boy. While repentance often moves slowly, the mercy of God our Father speeds towards us when he sees from afar our least desire to return. This is why confession is saturated with joy and hope. It is the joy of God's pardon, conferred through his priests, when one who has had the misfortune to offend his infinite love repentantly returns to the arms of the Father. So too do the words of God, who have recovered his lost and debased son, erupt into joy. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the calf we have been fattening and kill it. We are going to have a feast, a celebration, because this son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. The best robe was raiment kept for the guest of honor. With the ring went the father's delegated power to seal, renewed authority and restoration of rights. The sandals declared him to be a free man. It is in the sacrament of penance that you and I put on Jesus Christ and his merits. In confession, the Lord returns to us what we have culpably lost through sin, grace and the dignity of children of God. He has established the sacrament of his mercy so that we can always return to the family home, and our return always ends in joyful festivity. Just so, I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Having received absolution and having done the penance given to us by our confessor, the penitent, forgetting what lies behind, enters once more into the mystery of salvation and journeys on towards his future happiness. This reading, entitled Each of Us is the Prodigal Son from the second week of Lent, Saturday, comes from the Scepter Publisher's title In Conversation with God, Volume 2.